Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at one of our worship services. Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at either 9 or 11. Good morning. It's good to be back. Yeah? Okay. All right. Well, I, should, uh, uh, I have like a little bit of a cough, but it's because some coffee went down the wrong way. just want you guys to know that ahead of time. I have no reason to believe that I'm sick, uh, <clears throat> but this is me having coffee go down into my lungs. Um, we just have a, f- a few kind of uh, family business announcements uh, to make before we get into the text today. Uh, the first is this, um, bittersweet news. We had a member of our congregation pass away uh, over these last couple weeks. Uh, her name was Shirley Baker. Um, I'm... You may know uh, Went and Shirley. They were regular attenders of the 9 a.m. service. Um, so if you could just pray for Went as he mourns the loss of his wife, that, that the Lord would increase his hope in the resurrection and that his wife is presently with the Lord right now. We also have some, some good news. Uh, we've had two births. One, Max Ryan Boyd, June 11, 2020. Also, Scarlett June Laney, June 20, 2020. They, both those families join the uh, Four Kids Club. It's fun. They'll see. It's hard. They're going to have fun, though. They're going to have fun. I think they will. I'm having fun. All right. Well, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, and uh, we're going to read the text together, beginning with verse 1, uh, going all the way through to verse 13. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies... They will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part... Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. The greatest of these is love. Amen? Amen. All right. So as I was preparing this week and thinking through this passage, I can't help but just consider, like, kind of the the present situation that we're in. I'm uh, 33 years old now. And I'm thinking back over my medium-length life so far. Don't think I'm young. Don't think I'm old. 
somewhere in the middle. And I'm trying to think through, if I have ever lived in a time that is as contentious and polarizing as the one I'm living in right now? And I think the answer is no. I think right now is the most contentious, divisive, polarizing time that I've ever lived in. When I look at society, we don't agree on a million things. We don't agree on the coronavirus. We don't agree on how to address it, how dangerous it is, uh, what we should or shouldn't do. We have other questions and concerns associated with it about the economy and personal liberty. Uh, We don't agree about whether our governing authorities are right now handling uh, the virus well. We're wondering, are Trump and Newsom and Garcetti doing a good job? And we we don't agree on that. Uh, we don't agree on uh, issues of justice. We, we view things differently and we think about them differently. We don't agree on a million other things. Um, and that's not just true uh, for the society. I know that, that to a certain degree, that's true for our church. I'm on Facebook. I know we don't agree on everything. And I feel the dials getting turned up. And for some of us, these conversations may have been more abstract, but I'm sure for many of you, over the course of the last few weeks, they have invaded your personal relationships as well. So they're concrete and they're real to you in ways that they maybe haven't been before. And I fear when I survey the situation of our church and of our community as a whole, that we are trending worse right now and not better. It's becoming more intense and more divisive. When I interact with people, I don't feel like I'm walking on eggshells. I feel like I'm walking on Legos. Like, I'm just concerned and I'm worried. And to be clear, I'm not saying you, I'm saying us, us. It's a concern I have. So when I look at at a passage like 1 Corinthians 13, I am thankful that in God's providence, he has provided for us a passage that I think speaks to us right now. One that I think speaks specifically to us. When we look back at the church at Corinth, Paul's writing to a church that is more broken than our church. That is more divided than our church. And he's been addressing all kinds of different issues as he's walked through this letter and and answered questions that they've had. and, And is dealing with reports he's heard about them. He's dealing with really depraved and wicked sin. He's dealing with really bad divisions. He's dealing with powerful groups oppressing less powerful groups. He's dealing with weird pagan and and idol worship stuff that's going on. He's handling all kinds of issues. He sees a church at Corinth that's like a ship running towards troubled waters. And in writing this letter, he's building a lighthouse. Because although he's addressing all these issues, and these issues do specifically matter, undergirding all of them is the power of the gospel to save and how the cross leads to a cross-shaped life. He's building a lighthouse for them to look at. So we get to chapter 13. Chapter 13, the love chapter. It's called the love hymn. You guys heard it called the love hymn before? Yeah, it's famous. Who's heard it read at a wedding? Who's read it at a wedding? Who had it read at their wedding? Yeah, Uh, if you don't have 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 7 read at a Christian wedding, I don't know if the wedding counts, I'm not sure. (laughs) <laughs> just it's so common it's common in christian weddings and it's also like really common in secular weddings people who don't believe in jesus have this read at their weddings because it sounds nice your love is patient and you're like yeah love is patient that sounds nice like love is kind you're like love is kind 
does not envy, it does not boast. And you're like, I, those, everyone is on board with that. Let's read this at weddings. Now here's the thing, it's fine if you had a read at your wedding. I, I don't want you to hear me critiquing you on that. It's fine. However, however, in our culture, in our society, we take these uh, three verses, sometimes a whole chapter, and we just rip it out of context. And it sounds like a nice song about love. But <laughs> it, it actually, I think, was, was not meant to evoke in the Corinthians sentimental feelings and goosebumps and all that stuff. I think it was a scathing rebuke. I don't think that they are feeling hugged. I think they're feeling slapped. I think as Paul is describing to them, love is this. Every person who's there is going, ooh, he's saying I'm not like that. Because in the context of this letter, Paul has been very aggressively and succinctly dealing with all kinds of issues. And he moves into the issue of love and he says, love is this thing. Inevitably, people who are hearing it would be thinking, oh, I'm not patient. I'm not kind. I'm not this or I'm not that. My fear is, because of how ubiquitous this passage is in our culture, it hits us the wrong way. We misunderstand it. My, my prayer for, for this morning, for this passage, and really any time we hear a sermon, is that, is that we hear it the right way. I'm going to tell you a story. I've been here for many, many years, and when I was like 14, I remember being here on like a Sunday, and, uh, and probably Zach was preaching, and I was standing right outside these doors that you all walk through today, and there was a guy who was kind of like leaning against the, the edge of the door. It was open, and he was being affected by what, what Zach was saying. I could tell that it was, was getting to him. And we believe the Word of God does that, right? You hear it, and it, it forms your heart, and it forms your mind, and it, it, it like induces change in your life. And I hope that all of you have at some point sat in a sermon, and it's formed you, not because of the preacher, but because the Word of God does that to you. So I hear him say, preach it, Zach. And I'm like, Yes, this guy's this guy's being formed. And then he goes on, preach it to my wife, Zach. <laughs> uh, and I think all of us are like, oh yeah, I get that. Maybe not specifically with our wives, but we hear sermons, right? I, I know, like in Brutal Cookie, I, I'm, I'm guilty. Like I'll be sitting in a sermon and the preacher will be saying things that are encouraging and exciting and joy-inducing. I'm like, thank you, pastor. And then the pastor will say something that's kind of critical and a rebuke. And I'll be like, get him, pastor. Because <laughs> I've got someone in my brain that I'm like, that person really needs to hear this. It's a very special spiritual gift, handing sermons to other people. <laughs> you really need this. Here's <laughs> what I want to do. I want us to like, uh, to, to like, as we hear the word of God, as we hear it today, as I try to unpack it and, 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 and bring it today, what I, what I want you to do is I want you to do this difficult task. It's difficult for me as I prepare in the week. I want you to make yourself the object of the hard lessons. I want you to hear the rebuke and say, that was meant for me. You don't even know what they are yet. I want you to say, that was meant for me. Because as Paul is seeking to help this church that is divided be unified, because it is not our natural disposition to be unified. It is natural for us to be disunified. As he's seeking to, to, to cause this divided church to be unified, the only way that they can navigate all these issues is if they hear Paul's words of rebuke, of criticism, of correction, as directed to their own personal hearts. So put your spouse out of your mind, your, your brother, your sister, your roommate, your friend, your enemy, your frenemy, whoever. Just move them all out. And today, think, this was meant for my correction. 
can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> okay. I would rather you be mad at me than not hear the word of God. Most of the time, I can take it. Paul moves through this passage, I think, in a really, really clear and clever way. He first talks about uh, love's absence. What does it look like for love to be absent? We, we can go to um, verse 1 through 3. Oh, hold on, Robert. Sorry, my bad. He also will talk about love's appearance and love's aim. But don't worry. We'll get back to all of them. Love's absence, verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. If you've been with us for a couple of weeks, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Zach was talking about the illustration that Paul offers for the church, which is the body. And Paul essentially says, a body has many parts, and for the body to work, they all have to work together. And he uses the examples of hands and feet and eyes and stuff like that, ears. And we know that Paul's point is the whole body is blessed by God with various members who have various gifts for the edification of the body and for the glorification of God. And essentially Paul is saying there are no big deals. If you think you're a big deal because you are an eye, you're not because the eye needs all the other parts of the body. That's part of what Paul is getting at. That the church rises and falls together. He says, yes, you need teachers. Yes, you need prophets. Yes, you need healers. Yes, you need servants. You need all of these things. But that's very much the point. You need all of them. And so he comes to the end of that section, I think a metaphor, an illustration that we all understand very well. And then he does this little bit of a, of a turn. Uh, we, can, we can read this in verse 27. That verse. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We get that. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. He says, are all apostles? And the implied answer is no. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Paul is saying gifts are good. We should pray for them. We should desire them. They are meant for our good. They are a way that we glorify God. But I have something better for you. I have something more fundamental, more empowering, more like the heart of God himself. And he gives three illustrations. Now, before we get into them, a couple things that are important. One is Paul is not saying gifts are bad. He's not saying spiritual gifts are bad. He is also not describing, to my mind, anyone's actual manifestation of this gift. He's using exaggeration and hyperbole here. So his first illustration is this. The illustration of tongues, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
saying, kind of confused me, like, does he mean tongues like Pentecost? Does he mean tongues like prayer language? I think he kind of means a mix of all sorts of different things here. He's saying, just imagine I have all the languages, all the languages of men. And we're like, man, that's impressive. Have you guys ever tried to learn more than one language? It's hard. And he's like, but not just that. Also, I know all the languages of the angels. And you're like, I don't even know what that means. But that's amazing. You know lots of languages. Your gift of tongues is unparalleled. And he says, if I was at the top of my game in this category of gifting, imagine the best you could possibly be. But I have not love. He's like, I'm just what? Noisy gong, clanging cymbal. And I think we hear that like annoying, like people just like hitting gongs, like the annoying sound of it, maybe like a comedian that, that hits it as a joke. I don't think that's what Paul means. Uh, gongs and cymbals uh, would have been manufactured and used in Corinth for the purposes of pagan worship. I think Paul's saying, listen, if you have not love, it doesn't matter how great you look, you're not serving the true God. You're as good as the pagans. He goes on to his second illustration. His second illustration is, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Again, it's like this exaggerated, hyperbolic version of someone who knows everything. (laughs) There are no mysteries because Paul is saying, hypothetically, I know the answer to all the mysteries. I'm aware of everything in the universe. My, My powers of knowledge are unparalleled. I have faith that can move mountains. I am in nearly every way a spiritual giant. Paul says, if there's a person who is maximally gifted in this way, but they have not love, right? He says, if I am this and I have not love, he says, I am nothing. Not just a clanging cymbal, not just a noisy gong, but is nothing. And he continues to this, this last example, the example of like generosity. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. He's describing probably, most, most scholars agree, a scenario in which someone would sell everything they have and, and give their, their goods or their money to the poor and someone who might be willing to even die on behalf of other people. He says, if you do all that and you have not love, you gain nothing. I want us to see something important, though. The contrast is not between love and gifts... It's not between gifts and love. It's between gifts with love and gifts without love. There's this sort of theological mathematics he's doing. He's saying love or gifts minus love is not gifts. It's nothing. Five minus one is zero is what Paul is saying. He is saying fundamental to everything that we do as believers is the premise of love. Uh, I'd like to think of uh, Wiley Coyote. This guy right here. You guys remember him? That poor guy. Get some applause for Wiley Coyote. And if you've watched these cartoons, and again, I'm like kind of middle-aged-ish, and I'm not sure how much this hits with people who are here. But if you've watched these cartoons, you remember like he runs off the cliff, right? No ground left, but he's still running. He's still in the air. It looks like he's running. His arms are moving. He's not falling. And then there's like the moment where he realizes there's no ground beneath him, and he falls. You know what I'm talking about? I really think that's a lot like what Paul is talking about. Like, you can look like things are going well, 
But if love isn't foundationally beneath you, you're going to fall. You will not succeed. And, And I think even more so, I think that even though Paul says, if you had these things and did not have love, you would have nothing, I actually think the sort of gifting he's talking about very rarely manifests without love in the first place. Like, does it matter? When I read these, I'm like, okay, so someone, someone can speak every language of angels and men. How helpful is that for the church? I guess. If it's just one guy, though, I don't know. Someone has all knowledge and knows all mysteries. Seems more helpful. Someone is extremely generous and gives up everything they have. That seems really helpful to me. So, so like, we have this natural question. Does it really matter? If like, people, someone's doing a good thing, does it matter whether or not they possess or embody the quality of love? And I just like demonstrate it this way. Um, a bad proposal would be, uh, I would like you to marry me um, to increase my financial prospects and so that I might look good to family and friends. I want you to know, I don't really love you. It's not about you. It's about me. Would you please join me in the accord of marriage? No one would say yes to that, right? Maybe a, maybe a small number of people. The point is, Love is meant not to necessarily be rooted in the object of your love, but definitely not in the, in the subject of love. Love is about self-divestment and self-sacrifice. I think if we were going to take um, these things that Paul says today, it would be something like this. Like, if I possess, if I've achieved every single possible conceivable seminary degree, and I know all the original languages perfectly, I can parse every verb, if I can talk about the history of Christianity with precision, if I can quote at the drop of a hat every sermon that Spurgeon ever delivered, but I have not love, I'm still nothing. If I sit in a service that seems to be spirit-filled and people are offering words of the Lord and prophecies seem to be happening and it seems like the Spirit is moving and it's ecstatic and people are really excited and there's lots of joy in the room, but I have not love, we have not love, we, we have nothing. If someone sells everything they have and, and out of their own choice chooses to live in abject poverty so that their goods can go to someone else, but they have not love, they are nothing. Paul is saying love for the Christian is indispensable and foundational. You have to have it. So what does that love look like? That's what he spends four through seven working through. What does love look like? We read about love's appearance. Go with me to verse four. Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is when when Paul's lyrical pitch and moving cadence is is running on all cylinders. It sounds good. If there was a mixtape of all of Paul's greatest hits, this passage is on that mixtape. You've heard it. And we have all these different translations, and inevitably some of you have come with different translations today, and you'll find that the way these verses get translated is often different because we're balancing two things. The translator is trying to preserve the lyrical nature of what Paul is trying to say and preserve as clear as possible the meaning of what Paul is trying to say. So, so the translations differ not because we're confused about what, what the words are. We, we know what the words are. We're trying to kind of balance these two things well. I, I want to run through them real quickly. 
because um, I think it's a good starting place. What, what do these words mean? It says, love is patient. Love is patient. Not just patient when you're sitting in traffic. That too. But patient in that wrongs can be done against you. And you can remain and wait on God in patience. That you can suffer injustice and you can wait and remain on God in patience. That we are not quick to retaliate when we feel or are actually slighted or wronged. Love is patient. Then the active twin, love is kind. Love is kind. When love does act, When love does begin to address situations, it does so with the foundational knowledge that every human being that you may or may not be fighting with is also made in the image of God and that you don't know everything about them, that we assume about them the best motivations and intents. And as we seek to resolve things, we care more about them being resolved well than resolved quickly. Love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy. Almost certainly a reference to feeling... uh, like frustration over someone else's success. I don't know who's here that that hits, hits me, right? When someone else is successful, that I think I should be successful in that way. I think somehow God owes me success. That can't be just me. Is it just me? Other people here have to feel that way. Either frustration over someone else's success or a little bit of joy over their failure. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think if we really thought about it, we feel that. Love does not boast. This is not Paul's common word for boasting. It's, it's uh, probably better translated, love is not a windbag. Uh, when I talk to people about the fact that I used to live in Scotland, one of the first things they ask me is, uh, did you hear um, bagpipes? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, did you like them? And I was like, on day one. <laughs> but I had a bagpipist outside my office all day, every day. Day one, I'm like, this is really cool. Feels very Scotland. Got the bagpipes. Kind of cold outside. Very, very Scotland. Day 10, I'm like, he's not that good at it. I don't really like the bagpipes that much. It's okay. Still very Scotland. Day 500, um, if I never hear bagpipes again for the rest of my life, I will die a happy man. There's <laughs> like this constant like squeezing of this back, right? Um, I think actually that's close to what Paul means here. And here's the question for you uh, to want to know if you, if you struggle, like, am I a boaster? When someone begins to talk about them, do you try and change the subject of the conversation to being about you? <laughs> when someone tells you a cool story, do you try and tell a better one? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's the tendency to make everything in a droning on and on way about us. Love is not arrogant. It's not puffed up. Love is not rude. I think here he's specifically referring to sexual sin. And just for the young people who are here or who are listening, sexual sin is not just your problem. It's the problem of your community. When you engage in sexual sin, you are always, without exception, also hurting someone else. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. It sets aside its own desires, its own ambitions, its own plans for the sake of other people. It is not irritable. It is slow to anger. Not quickly wound up such that it feels like it has to respond. It is not resentful. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It rejoices not in wickedness but in truth. And then Paul adds these four positives. Um, Love uh, bears all things. We could also read that as always bears. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. It never 
ends, or another way to translate word, that word is it never fails. Um, so I want us to see that when we read this description of, of love, when we get to this moment where Paul, again, remember, is rebuking, he's dealing with the Corinthians, he could say to them, be patient, be kind. You Corinthians, do not be envious, don't boast, don't keep a record of wrongs, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he personifies love. And he says, love is patient. Love is kind. He is directing their attention away from themselves. But at the same time, as you've heard, I think, before, uh, he is inviting them to place their own, own name in the place of love. Have you guys tried that? Like, Andrew is patient. Just ask my kids. Andrew is kind. Ask my wife. Andrew does not envy. He does, I, can't, I can't even get through it, right? It starts out as maybe something that's scalable, but as we progress through this passage, it becomes a mountain, and we get, by the end, crushed under it. Always bearing, always believing, always hoping, always enduring, never failing? <laughs> uh, I, I hate to break it to you. Uh, I don't have the perfect picture of love in my life. I think there's a sense that when we read this passage and we say, it'd be great if at the end my tombstone could read Andrew was patient, Andrew was kind. My tombstone only instead could ever read Andrew was a doomed sinner rescued by the grace of God. And whatever thing I did after that was also graciously given to me. Because I do think he is personifying love. Um, He wants us to put another name there, though. What name? The name of Jesus. Jesus, who was patient and kind, even though he is successful in ministry. A father who is distraught, who has a daughter, having her last breaths, approaches Jesus and says, Jesus, help me. And Jesus is patient and is kind, and he stops and he goes and he helps that father. Jesus does not envy, he does not boast, he is not arrogant or rude, even though he is the Lord of the universe, the one through whom everything was created and is sustained and will be brought together in the end, stoops down to wash the feet of his disciples. Jesus does not insist on his own way, instead he walks the way to Golgotha to be hung on a cross. Jesus bears all when he dies for our sin. Jesus always believes and always hopes, knowing that God's grace can come at the last moment when the thief next to him on the cross calls out for help. Jesus endures all when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he never fails because he leaves an empty tomb behind him and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. I want us to see that what we should naturally do when we see love personified in the words of Paul is to say, that's Jesus. That's my model for how I love. Not a method, not just a checklist. I think it can be helpful as a checklist, but more fundamentally, we should say Paul is describing first and foremost God's love for us. And it's important to understand that this is not the love you feel on your wedding day. It's not the love you feel when you hold your baby for the first time or all other forms of sentimental love that you will experience in your lifetime. Those are great. 
that's not the sort of love that I'm talking about. That's not the sort of love that Paul is talking about. He's not talking about sentimental love. He's talking about sacrificial love. We can see this other places in the Bible. When other places, other Bible writers or even Paul himself talk about love, they, they talk about God's love this way. Um, and we walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to Christ. What does Christ's love look like? It looks like what he did for us. Another one. Uh, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Love in connection with Christ's sacrifice. How about uh, R- Romans uh, 5? But God shows his love for us. How? Well, that in that we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Over and over and over again, when we read the scriptures of God's love in the Bible, it isn't warm feelings in God's heart. Those are fine to have. You can have warm feelings in your heart. It's okay. It's a love of action, a love of sacrifice. I do like premarital counseling, right? I like doing premarital counseling. I like um, when men come in for premarital counseling and they're like really nervous. Like, like, uh, like I got a, like a decline stamp, like decline. <laughs> you may not get married. <laughs> I should get one made up. I don't have one. But what I want to reiterate to couples over and over and over and over and over again, as much as I can and as often as they listen to me, is that sentimentality will not carry you through. It won't carry you through. Sentimentality will not carry you through. Anyone who's been married for a long time knows that. Sentimentality will not carry you through. Sacrifice will. A love of action and self-divestment that is modeled after Jesus who has gone before us. The one who gave up everything so that he might go to the cross and bear the wrath of God and pay our price. Then Paul moves on to love's aim. Love's aim. Let's, let's read uh, 8 through 13 again. Paul says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. There is a a lot in these five verses that, that we could sit in. And when I look at what other preachers have done as they've worked through Corinthians, many of them will preach four or five sermons on just this chapter because there's a lot here. Um, I really just want to try and boil it down to, to one main point. Paul is asking the Corinthians to, as they live out their lives, consider and remember what lasts and what is temporary. He's trying to help them navigate their divisions, their frustrations with each other, the sin they're experiencing. And he's saying, the perspective you need needs to be one that is aimed at that which lasts over that which doesn't last. And he uses two illustrations. He uses a lot of illustrations here. One is a child growing up. And the other is a mirror in which you can't see things well, because back then, mirror technology was not as good as it is today. (laughs) And seeing someone that is God face to face, whom you who you can see well, um, the idea is this: the gifts, as he's talking about them here, the, the primary area of their division are temporary. They don't last forever. Um, every year, 
uh, at Christmas, I, I buy my kids toys for Christmas at the dollar store because they are too young yet to know that those are terrible toys. <laughs> and I know I can just see the future a little bit better than them. I know that, uh, that the action figure my son has will be broken uh, by Christmas evening. <laughs> he doesn't know that. I know that. And so children cling to toys that we know are temporary. They fight over them. And we, we know they're temporary. Even if they're nice toys, they're going to go away. And Paul is saying you need to back away from temporary and you need to look at what lasts. Here's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't care about issues. I'm not saying don't call out sin. I'm not saying don't discuss how to handle issues well and what it means to be a Christian in various contexts. I'm saying undergirding all of that should be a love that is focused on self-divestment and self-sacrifice. You could only ever be patient with someone if you've gotten over yourself a little bit more. You can only ever be kind if you've let go of yourself a, a little bit more. Paul's saying the gifts, they're not going to be here forever. They're like flashlights at nighttime that you use to see, but the sun is going to rise. And when it does rise, it would look stupid to point a flashlight at it to see it better. One day, we won't need teachers because we will be present with God. One day, we won't need healers because no one's going to be sick. One day, we won't need people who raise bodies from the dead because no one will die. So these are gifts now. But we need to think about what will last. And Paul is saying to them, love will last. Because it is what first purchased you. And you can be certain that it's what you will experience at the end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the word that you've sovereignly given to us uh, in the letter of, of, uh, of uh, Paul's First Corinthians. We thank you for the fact that you inspired him to write it and you preserved it for us to read. We thank you that the Bible is still alive and does something to us when we read it. Father, I pray that we would trust you even now as things become more tense and, and less ideal, that we would soften our affections for things of the world and instead remember uh, that our hope is in you and our future is in you. I pray for all the people that are here today that in, in various areas of their life are struggling and dissatisfied and frustrated and hurt, that you would remind them that their hope and their joy is in you. Pray that you would protect our church and that you would preserve it. Pray that we just trust that you would. Pray that we be a church characterized by true love. We pray all these things in the great name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.